Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, political director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, and speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Representative Amy Sheldon of Middlebury, Chair of the House Committee on Environment and Energy, to hear what her committee is prioritizing this year and has already been busy with. Later, I speak with restoration ecologist Karina Daly of Vermont Natural Resources Council, talking all about dams, why they exist, the purposes they serve, and how removing derelict dams can unlock more resiliency for weather events and increasing biodiversity. But first, I want to bring Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, into the fold for our session shakedown segment, where we recap the last week in the State House and give a preview of what's in store next week. All right, Lauren, a bit of a less hectic week in the State House, I felt like. Did, did you feel the same? Yeah, I think they've gotten into their groove a bit. So it's, you know, the time of year when they are going into the weeds on a bunch of the policies. So really nerding out in the details, which is necessary to make good policy. Yeah, a couple weeks in, you know, it feels a little bit back to the regular routine. So um, Tuesday, we took part in a press conference about the Climate Superfund Act, and you stood with many legislators to call on making big oil pay for the disastrous climate implications that are brought on by fossil fuels. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so this bill, first of all, is, I think, a really important one, you know, as we're seeing all the growing costs from climate disasters, like the flooding this summer. um, We know that Vermonters can't be paying for all of this alone, and the companies who have profited massively off of selling fossil fuels, um, which are fueling these disasters, uh, should be on the hook for helping pay for the mess that they've made. Um, So I think it's important legislation, and it was really exciting to be uh, standing there with some great legislative leaders, and as these bills were introduced with really strong um, levels of co-sponsorship, so showing some real kind of interest and momentum going in from lawmakers. Yeah. Last week, uh, you had spoke with Senator Bray about all the action that's happening in the Senate Committee on Natural Resources. Is there anything new to report there? They have been really continuing to dig into the resilience policies. So a lot of science lessons and things on how how rivers work and, um, you know, why protecting riverways, uh, wetlands and better dam management are going to be impactful for flood resilience. Um, so that's where a lot of their heads have been at. Um, they've also been starting to walk through some of the land use reports, um, looking at things like Act 250 modernization. So another issue that will be coming before them and getting updates on, on a lot of the work that was happening uh, during the off session in the summer and fall. Yeah, and we're starting to see some action, um, probably more next week, but on uh, from the House Committee on Agriculture, Food Resiliency, and Forestry on a bill that would ban neonicotinoid usage in seeds. What's the scoop on that bill? 
Yeah, so that legislation, um, neonicotinoids, of course, have been linked to um, real harmful impacts on pollinators like birds and bees. And um, there's been some progress in other states like New York to ban neonic coated seeds. So uh, looking for Vermont to do the same. So it's exciting that lawmakers appear to be taking the issue up this year. And, you know, hopefully we can get some progress behind that. Yeah, and the House Committee on Environment and Energy was has been very busy with all of our policy priorities, it feels like. Yeah. Um, and you spoke with their chair, Representative Amy Sheldon. Uh, do you want to set that up for listeners? Yeah, uh, got the chance to hear some of uh, Representative Sheldon's top priorities for the year and some quick updates on where a number of VCV priority bills uh, stand today. Awesome. So check that out. Yeah, let's listen in. I am here with Representative Amy Sheldon of Middlebury, who is the chair of the House Environment and Energy Committee, and uh, she has been a longtime champion of protecting our environment, and so really excited to have the chance to sit down with you today and hear about your big priorities for the year. Obviously, huge things going on, and a lot of environmental issues are some of the biggest profile issues of the year. So welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Yeah, so why don't you just start out and uh, share with us what you're most excited to work on this year. Yeah, well, so as always, I'm thinking about climate front and center. And um, with that in mind, we're starting out with pretty deep conversations, picking up from off-session work on the renewable energy standard uh, and hoping to get that across the finish line pretty, pretty quickly here as the session starts. And um, we have a large statewide land use bill that also brings together a lot of off-session work from many people, um, which will update our statewide land use, not just the regulations, but the process for how it happens in such a way that it helps us reinforce our statewide land use planning goals, which also help our communities become more climate resilient. So I'm excited for those two big efforts this session. That is great, and you all already started off the session one of the first days um, voting very successfully to override a gubernatorial veto on the bottle bill, something you all had worked really hard on last year. So congrats on that really great vote. That felt great. We kicked off the first week of the session with a veto override at 112 votes, very strong votes um, on that bill. And frankly, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but solid waste bills are also climate bills. We have to address how we uh, manage all of the single-use items that we have grown quite fond of using, we need to do better, and the bottle bill really helps with that. Absolutely. Um, and I know that right now the Senate has started looking at some um, water-related resilience policies, um, policy ideas that you've been talking about for a number of years, so I'm really excited to see uh, to see that work also picked up in your committee this year. Um, I know, you know, issues that you have a lot of expertise on and leadership on, so that will be great to see the good work I'm sure your committee will do on that as well. Um, any other kind of top things you want to put out to, to people or I can let you go. I know it's been a busy week. <laughs> um, well, well, we'll also be taking up some in the, our other area of jurisdiction, which is sort of the broadband telecom world. We're always um, working to improve, you know, connectivity and access for Vermonters to um, work from their homes. So that'll be also things we check in on. And 
know, that's what I can think of now. Yeah. Oh, and we uh, stood together at a press event this week on a bill to hold fossil fuel companies accountable. So uh, you were able to kind of share some perspectives on the needs that our communities now have to increase resilience, and we need to hold big oil accountable for helping pay for the mess their products have made. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's really a key thing here, and there's a theme in our committee this session around how do we support our communities, both large and small, as they both address emergency situations in the short term, but plan for longer term resilience. And yeah, we need funding and we need the folks who have profited the most from fossil fuels to support us in this. Absolutely. Well, sounds like a big and important portfolio. Thanks for all that you're doing. We will certainly have you back as we get into it to hear how all these bills are shaping up, but hope you have a great weekend after a busy, busy week. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Lauren. And now it's time for my interview with Karina Daly. As the restoration ecologist at Vermont Natural Resources Council, she is responsible for their dam removal program and contributing her scientific knowledge and expertise to policy issues around the conservation and restoration of Vermont's waters. She is a certified wetland scientist and wildlife biologist from Jericho, Vermont, who also serves on her town's conservation commission. Welcome to the podcast, Karina. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I want to start our conversation today to really just sort of serve as a baseline of knowledge about something many of us probably don't really think about often too much in great detail, but something that exists in a lot of our communities here in Vermont, and those are dams. Some of us may pass them daily on our commute. Some of us may live right near them, um, use the reservoirs that are created by them, receive our electricity from them, or even have them on our properties um, ourselves. So it's not clear exactly how many dams are in Vermont, but according to recent reporting from VT Digger, experts believe the number is over a thousand and the oldest in Vermont is about 230 years old and the average age of a dam in the state is roughly 80 years. So Karina, first off, why does Vermont have so many dams and what purposes do they serve for us today? Great question. I think Vermont has so many dams because we, at one point in time, we needed those dams and we have inherited our settlement patterns um, from those that came before us. And um, since European colonization, we built our development near rivers because we needed to harness the river as a resource for its power. So those dams... Um, were mills and it was a very small scale industry. So there was multiple dams on rivers um, and, and, you know, some, some rivers, you know, over hundreds of dams. So it is during that time that there was a huge development in mill in dams um, related to mills. So they were used for ice ponds, reservoirs, as you mentioned, recreation areas in some cases, swimming holes, some of our favorite swimming holes or ponds and and wildlife habitat as well yeah so you know obviously with the flooding that we experienced last summer dams were in the in the conversation so the Wrightsville dam in Montpelier was really close to breaching um the Chester reservoir in uh, the dam associated with that reservoir in Chester there was a private dam in Williamstown that got a little dicey there at one point and several dams in Ludlow were all discussed and they sparked headlines and community conversations 
So are dams helpful or a hindrance when it comes to these weather events that we've been experiencing? Dams are a hindrance for the most part. That being said, there's a big difference between our flood control dams and our derelict um, non-operational dams. And in Vermont, we only have about eight flood control dams. These are dams that are operated by the Army Corps of Engineers. They were built for flood control um, because we built our our big towns and cities uh, on the rivers, and they are managed for that purpose, meaning that they are constantly dredged behind the dam to maintain adequate storage during high flow events. And the dam infrastructure is, is consistently upgraded and maintained. Um, That being said, the other dams that are not managed for flood control um, do not get dredged behind them and sediment builds up because a river wants to transport sediment um, down the system and that sediment and nutrients build up behind the dam, which actually can raise the elevation of the river channel. And during a flood event, that actually exacerbates flooding. Okay, so we're not saying right now like, these dams, you know, some of the ones that I mentioned, those are those need to go necessarily. Um, they're serving a purpose still, correct? The flood control dams are serving a purpose still, and we need to recognize that um, as we continue to, you know, um, support our downtown development areas. Those dams that aren't managed for flood control um, or were potentially, you know, built for flood control, maybe by a municipality, but aren't, you know, further maintained or managed for that purpose. We need to reevaluate those dams um, because the hydrologic analysis usually shows that those dams actually exacerbate flooding. Um, they, you know, in addition to raising the elevation of the river channel, they also constrict the river's access to its floodplain. So when you put a concrete barrier across a river channel, then you block the river's ability to access a floodplain below there or even upstream of that area because the river can't move out into an area where it historically might have because it's impounded, so it's actually holding water in that area already. So when you when you remove a barrier, you're restoring that connectivity to the stream um, and that natural function of the stream being able to go out onto its floodplain to slow slow the flow and retain water, um, as well as allowing you know the movement of water downstream. Okay, so this is why we are talking dam removal for increasing resiliency rather than let's make more dams to help control future flooding. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So is there any, is there anything else besides just in weather events, reasons, you know, why we would want more dam removal? Um, Certainly. So, you know, in addition to weather events, we want dam removal for increased biodiversity. So there's, you know, wildlife, um, most fish species can't move up and down a river with a dam, a concrete barrier in the way. You know, trout, some trout can jump pretty high and, you know, you know, a small waterfall, they can move up that system during high flow events. But um, man-made dams obviously block that, tra- that movement of 
um, aquatic organisms up and down a river system. In addition to aquatic or organisms, wood turtles are a priority species in Vermont. They can't um, move up and down the system, which they need to do to um, to mate during mating season. And so that's another, you know, wildlife species that is blocked. When you have a dam in a river, it really changes the ecosystem behind that dam. So the water warms up. Um, the temperature increases different fish. You have sunfish and bass versus brook trout, which Vermont is known for their brook trout. So habitat is a big piece. Water quality is another. When you have a dam, you, um, you know, the temperature increases. The, you have lower dissolved oxygen. You have lower turbidity, um, which can have substantial um, water quality impacts as well. Um, in addition to that, you know, public, so we talked about flood resilience as far as like slowing the flow, but it's also a public safety factor when, you know, a dam, it's a liability both to the landowner itself and to the downstream community. So thinking about, you know, emergency, there was two dam failures in the um, July storm that happened. Fortunately, no one was impacted in Vermont, but there could have been substantial impacts with just the infrastructure collapsing and moving downstream, as well as the floodwaters. So we remove dams for public safety, for clean water, for wildlife habitat, and for community resilience and climate, climate change. So I know back in 2022, there was talk about ghost dams. Um, I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit more about what ghost dams are. Um, I assume they're not as scary as they sound, but also maybe they are. But how do you find them and how important are they to for you to inventory and then eventually remove? A ghost dam is a dam that has not been identified. So the Vermont Dam Inventory is... Um, a program that the Dam Safety um, Program of Department of Environmental Conservation runs, and that identifies all the dams on the state that are on record or under jurisdiction. But there are a lot of dams out there that aren't on that list, and we call those ghost dams. So they're dams that haven't been reported or were built without permission or were even built before permission, you know, before permission even existed. Um, so those are the dams that continue to haunt us and we need to identify and have them in our database so that we know of their existence, we can keep track and make sure they're maintained properly. And um, if they're no longer needed, we can remove them and restore our natural stream function. Is it obvious to, you know, the average Vermonter who might be out on a walk in the woods, like, is it, is it easy to identify what one of these dams would look like? Or are they, are, are some of them more obvious than others? And, and then if they, if there is one that maybe is questionable or is definitely a dam, what is the best way for, for folks to get in touch with, you know, people like you who want to inventory them? Yeah. So, um, I would say for the most part, it's easy you know, sometimes you will see old, you know how you see old stone walls in the forest. It's similar with some of these dams there, you know, can be very much like old stone infrastructure, sometimes even timber cribs, so old wood infrastructure. 
But the key is whether it's actually, you know, blocking the river and blocking that transport of sediment and wildlife habitat. If it's an old dam that's completely crumbled, we're not interested in it other than that's a historical, you know, that's a nice historical find. But if the natural river, if it's not impounding the river and that um, impacting natural transport of sediments and nutrients and water downstream, then then we're not concerned, nor would dam safety. Um, and then to the last part of that question, I think where can you go to find out more is our um, Free Vermont Rivers is our website that has a lot of really great information about identifying dams and the dam removal process. Great. Um, so uh, you've been part of some dam removal projects um, in your role at Vermont Natural Resources Council. Um, what are some that you've taken part of and, and how do you decide which projects are, are the ones to move forward and how are those funded? Yeah, great question. Um, so VNRC has been doing dam removal for over five years, but it's still a relatively new program. I've been um, with VNRC for three years and we've removed a dam every year that I've been here and I'm hoping to remove more than one a year eventually here. So we have, you know, we have probably over 20 different projects in the hopper that are in different stages. The thing about dam removals is they take a really long time to complete. Um, it's just a slow process um, as there's a lot of interested parties involved in the process. It takes, they're expensive. It takes a lot of money to raise funds to remove these pro projects. And it's, you know, there's a regulatory aspect. There's a lot of permits required. That being said, um, we've removed, in 2021, we removed Dunkley Pond Dam in Rutland, in the city of Rutland. And that was a dam that um, actually was a public safety risk. The fire department had evacuated two of the um, houses that are like um, multifamily housing units right next to the dam. They'd evacuated those units eight times since, I believe, even starting before Irene, so like 2009 until um, 2019. And the most recent evacuation was the Halloween storm event in 2019. And they evacuated at that point, and they actually performed an emergency breach on the dam to save the infrastructure and um, those homes uh, after evacuation, as well as Route 7, which is downstream of the dam. So that, that emergency breach was like a temporary fix to stabilize the dam, uh, well, the lack of dam, to remove a portion of the dam, open the dam up so that the river could flow and not back up behind it. And then we raised funds to fully remove the dam because there was still a lot of dam there that was impacting the river channel and still raising floodwaters. So in 2021, we removed that dam and restored Tenney Brook, which is the name of the brook that flows through um, Rutland. So that was a great project and an important public safety project, as well as clean water um, and fish passage. So it really did check all those boxes. We removed a dam in 2022, the Pelletier Dam in Castleton, Vermont, and the removal of that, that dam reconnected 37 miles of brook trout habitat. So that had a huge wildlife benefit, um, as well as public safety and clean water. There was a two acres of wetland that were restored with that dam removal. 
and a significant amount of floodplain storage, so increased capacity for, for climate resilience. And looking towards 2024, we have a dam in West Rutland we're working with the town of West Rutland on. We have a, town, a dam in Salisbury that we are working on. We have three dams on the Brewster River in, um, in Jeffersonville that we're working on. So really exciting projects moving forward. Awesome. Yeah. And speaking of the future, what, um, from a policy perspective, um, is standing up to you in relation to dams? What, what can we, what's currently being discussed? Yeah. So even before the July storm event, dam safety was, um, a big component. The dam safety program in Vermont is very well respected. That being said, they're managing over a thousand dams and they don't have a lot of capacity. So it was identified that dam safety needed additional support. And I think the July storms and even the December storm just reinforced that point. So there is a bill called S-213 that um, has both a wetlands, river corridor, and dam safety component. And those um, all those features are packaged into this bill because it's it's about reconnecting fresh water systems for climate resilience. So it's it's about removing those barriers, those dams to reconnect river and restore natural river process. It's about protecting our river corridors and our floodplains to give the river the room it needs to move to slow it down. And it's about reconnecting the wetlands with the floodplains and the rivers. So we're getting that cold, clean water from our wetlands um, directly to our rivers and mitigating for that so that we're sure that we're protecting it into the future. And the dam safety piece of that also includes, you know, improved um, reporting requirements. So we need to know whose dams are failing and how they're failing and what the plan is for maintenance. And if there isn't a plan and if they don't have the funds, then maybe removing that dam is, is a better plan. So supporting the safest the safest dam is a no dam. Um, that being said, we do need a plan for maintaining our flood control dams. Sounds like a damn lot of work, <laughs> but, but excited to get it done. <laughs> you can say that for sure. Uh, for folks wanting more information, you can visit freevermontrivers.org and Karina's contact information is on that site. Thanks, Karina. Thank you. I want to thank our guests, Karina Daly, Representative Amy Sheldon, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting vermontconservationvoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Next week, I'll be checking in with the co-chairs of the Climate Solutions Caucus, Representative Gabrielle Stevens and Senator Becca White. Until then, thank you for listening.